I couldn't speak till I was three years old. And my sister did all the talking for me. Good. Well, thank you for taking the time to come here because you're on a tight schedule, aren't you? I've, I'm in Tokyo. I live on my sailboat. That's And beautiful. I've been living on the boat for four years. The first two years was here at Shinkiba, okay. at Yuminoshima Marina. Right. And then two years ago, I severed my contract and been sailing full-time since. And I'm currently in a Mami Oshima. Okay. But when uh, you're in Shinkiba, when you, when you started sailing on your sailboat, that was your address? No, it's not allowed. Yeah, legally, that's not allowed. Oh, so it's my, not allowed in Japan. My, 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 so you, liveaboards are not allowed in Japan. You can't, Period. You can't, in terms of your official address. Okay. You can stay aboard, but you can't live aboard. So what's the difference? It's a legal difference. Tell it me It can't be your address. So you have to have a land address. So what did you use for land? Uh, we, uh, so we have a family home in Nagoya, on a mountainside outside Nagoya. My wife and I uh, designed and built a log house, okay. solar powered. That's mm -hmm. her dream. Uh, we raised our boys in Nagoya. They, they're both graduates of Nagoya International School. So you have two boys. My wife's father was a founder of Nagoya International School. Wait, we're going to get through to you first okay. of all. You're okay. trying to avoid you real quick. Okay. Just gonna, no, you're not taking me there. Wait. So tell me, where, where were you born? Okay, yeah, I, I really, I, yeah, I, I've uh, discerned that's your usual starting question. So I was born in an obscure little town called Eston in the province of Saskatchewan so uh, in Canada. Okay. I'm a Canadian right. and uh, that the hospital burned down a couple weeks before I was born so I was born in the in the town hall. Is that right? Yeah. Okay so did you have siblings? How many siblings do you have? I have an older sister her okay. name is Faith and a younger brother Brent five years younger who's actually in the hotel room. He came for my son's wedding Okay. And now he's going to fly down to mommy with me tomorrow morning. So you send away your sister's good? Your sister's okay? Sister's good, yeah. And she, your brother, obviously, he's okay. And, and, and he's okay. What and, about uh, mom and dad? And uh, my father passed away just over 10 years ago. And my mother is now, she might, she's 93, uh, with full-on dementia. Oh, and, that's uh, sad. That's but she went through the a period where it was the uh, phase of dementia and Alzheimer's where she was paranoid, angry, but now she's on the blissful side, oh, which is nice to see. How long was that that she was on the uh, Well, she's... It, How long she had it? Well, who knows when it started, you know, it's loss of memory, etc. But uh, she, let's see, she was moved to the third floor uh, now three years ago. So it's been three years since the doctors determined that she wasn't capable to live in a semi-independent. And, and like, like many others, uh, and I'm not sure about your family back in the States, but perhaps similar, you know, she was basically locked up and locked down during pandemic oh. and went months without any touch or hug. Come on. Yeah. And uh, in fact, uh, I would have... A, I, I talked to her most days. Okay. And, and back did, then... Did she, did she know who you were? Well, back then she did. And okay. now it's occasionally she knows. Okay. And now I'm dependent on my sister being there. Whereas back then I could phone her and she'd pick up the phone and we would Skype. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then and this one conversation she said to me um, as she was locked down. She said, 
have you had the virus? She asked me. I said, no, I haven't. And then she says, my TV has it. I said, your TV? I kind of chuckled. Yeah, it's just pouring out of my TV all day long. <laughs> and then she says, sure, I'd like to kick the guy in the ass who invented this COVID. <laughs> and I thought, well, she's I kind right. of agree she's, with you. She's right. Yeah. She's right. So let's get back. What type of child were you when you were growing up? Were you more academic or were you more sports-minded? I was a middle child, so... That, does it, what does that have to do? Because so, so, you had a sister, but wait, how many years between you and your sister, first of all? Uh, three, and then five to my brother. Okay, so first of all, you just had a sister that was terrorizing you for a while. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so I say I'm a middle child because they always remind me I'm the middle problem okay. child. Okay. So I was the quiet one of the two. They were the... They, they the, had personalities. They, yeah, the, uh, they had personalities. So I couldn't... Actually, I, I used to write books for a living, and I'm now... Uh, uh, there's another book. My 10th book has been released in September after a multi-year hiatus uh, with a British publisher. And I say that because as I was reflecting, the first part of the book, it's called Memoirs of a Misfit Dreamer. And, and so as I was kind of digging deep and being pushed by the publisher somewhat to go deeper, um, it, it, I've written some, some things I've never talked about before. And, and one of them is, I, I couldn't speak till I was three years old. And my sister did all the talking for me. Now, in, well, how did she know what you wanted to say? She just made it up. It was just her way of controlling me. Um, and I say that, you know, with love and affection. But in hindsight, you know, it, it kind of a, rec, a retro diagnosis is, I was mildly autistic. I had all the symptoms of that. So I... And it had to do with some motor skills were lacking and et cetera, et cetera. So I was the quiet one. Okay. I couldn't speak till I was three. Actually, the day my sister started school, I spoke my first word, wait, which, was, don't go. which was pop. And I was glad to see her go, uh, which was pop. I wanted a, a drink of pop. The word was ish. And then for the longest time, I, I didn't pronounce S's. So I would say, instead of snake, I would say nake. Or instead of snow, no. And then my sister says, no, you got to say snake, snow. So then I would go, scar, train. I just thought S appeared in everything. <laughs> so I, I was quiet, but I was also, uh, you know, you learn to cope. Um, uh, I had reading difficulties even to this day. The, the longer, the, the more syllables a word has, the, the more I have to concentrate on visualizing that word like a graphitex flowing in front of my brain. But it made me, I think, uh, reflective and thought a lot and and uh, had some dreams early on of what I wanted to do and Such a, of adventure. Um, fly airplanes. What, what age are you Cross talking deserts. About? What age was this? Uh, the, I was still in elementary school. I remember particularly uh, a dream I had in my sleep that kind of, it was almost an epiphany that that uh, I wanted to travel the world and, and uh, help people on the planet. And uh, as a, uh, most of my adult life has been in the NGO world, the nonprofit really? world, yes. Well, well, how, well, okay, okay, but let's so, get yeah, to yeah. there. Let's get there real quick. That's interesting how you could, most of your life has been in NGO world. You start in elementary school, okay, so you had these problems, you weren't aware of them. You just knew that you were a quiet kid. I, I, was diagnosed you. I was diagnosed in grade one and put in a special class. And then my father, who was a minister, when he would move to different parishes, 
eventually they lost track of my records. So I always felt like the, the dumb kid in the class. Well, so you moved a lot. Yes. So yes. how often did you move? Let's say in a, in, from first grade to uh, sixth grade, uh, how far would grade you Grade one, I, well, we moved locations within cities. Probably every couple of years I was in a different school growing up. Almost like a military kid, I guess. So you, really, I guess it would be. Yeah. So you, didn't ha you don't have any real close friends. I do have close friends. From elementary? Uh, not from elementary. Mm -hmm. um, in, in other kind of family networks and social okay. networks, right. my parents are part of I have. Were, you, were, were both your mother and father, let's see, did they have big families themselves? Or come from big families, I mean. Like yeah, they're both back. Yeah, I think they're both in fa families of six. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of, pre I mean, what kind of, re what religion? He was, was a Protestant. Protestant. Uh, okay. uh, uh, right. A pastor in Canada. And... Uh, he, uh, he was a farm boy. Uh, it, the first book I wrote had a whole section on my grandparents immigrating from England to Canada in the early 1900s, lured by the promise of free, of free land. Right, okay, and my, else and my father was the youngest of six. Uh, when he was three years old, his father died, and their six-bedroom house on the homestead, they become rather wealthy by then, the house burned down. And so he was actually raised in poverty mm. um, as the youngest was always kind of mama's boy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and that family farm is still in the family. Yeah, my cousin owns it now. Which, when it burned down, did that, how did that make them grow up in poverty? No one came to help them build or what? Well, there was no insurance. Okay. And, and it, was, it was the house burning plus that my grandfather died. Okay. Right, so it, it left this single mom with six I kids. Right. I think the oldest maybe had been, the, the two oldest were daughters. Um, and, and then it was left to the four younger boys. But yeah, the neighbors all helped, but there was no insurance. There was no yeah, other. Right. And, you know, they, they had a few hundred, they, I think they had two quarter sections. Mm -hmm. That's a hundred and, what, 160 acres each or 120? This is all up in Canada. That's all in Saskatchewan, just okay, north of Montana. Okay. Just an hour's north of the Montana border. Wow. So you're really close to the states. You're right there. We're right there. You can step across. Yeah, a lot of places you can just step across. Nobody would say anything. You can indeed. <laughs> and people do. I know they do. So tell me this, because I have a friend that lives in Montana. So when you were growing up, when you got into junior high school, did you, did you grow up with a complex thinking you had a problem by any chance? Did that start to act as a stigma? You thought you were the dumbest. You said, no, you just said that. You said, yeah, well, yeah. You from town to town, you always felt like you were the dumbest kid there. Yeah, it was kind of... You know, again, I've only reflected on this in any serious way the last few months. It was kind of a split um, view of myself. On one hand, I felt a, a bit stupid compared to others. On the, other hands, on the other hand, I couldn't figure out why it took some people s such a long time to figure something out when the answer was obvious. Mm -hmm. so, so I could process information. Um, and so I, I kind of eventually developed what I now would call my superpowers. I didn't call them that. We all have traits that we can leverage for success. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I kind of realized what, what I could do. Which and was? I could think. Okay. I, I, thinking was important. Did and also want, perseverance. Let me ask you this. Did you ever have a teacher or someone in your life that said, you know something, you were ba 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 ba, and you went, yeah, and you believed it because of what they were telling you how, no. how, how well adapted you were at being able to deal with people or different answers or anything like not, that? Not growing up. 
except my mother, but she doesn't count. Okay. So you knew she <laughs> always felt no, that way. No. So, no, I was quiet and I thought a lot. So I, I was never the life of the party. Um, but endurance, was an, endurance became an important part of my life. So when I was 12 years old, we were living in Winnipeg, Manitoba. My father was the minister of a church. And they had announced at school they were going to have a Miles for Millions walk. It was going to raise money for the poor in Haiti. Haiti, of course, has chronic problems in terms of natural disasters and poverty. But it was, I didn't even know where Haiti was. And, and it wasn't helping Haiti that attracted my attention. It was to walk 35 miles in one day, about 50 kilometers. Right. Uh, well, you're American, you know miles. Right, right. And so I thought, I wonder if I could do that. And so I signed up. And my best friend, Doug, signed up as well. And then I realized, oh, I have to raise, I have to get sponsors, I have to get money as well. So I did. I met the financial goal of raising money, not for myself, but for Haiti. And I walked that 35 miles and I raised that money for Haiti. And that changed my life because that was a big confidence booster. At 12? At age 12, 50 kilometers in one day. And so... I've been fundraising ever since. I've been fundraising, I'm 68. I've been raising money since age 12, uh, largely for the- Do you know the place you came in? It it wasn't a race. It wasn't a race. And there was like- It was just being able to do it. There was like, it was, there was 20 or 30,000 people. Okay. And it was- But everyone didn't make it, obviously. I suppose not. Yeah, right. And there were, there were water stations along the way. You had to get- you had to get, get stamped stamp to prove that you'd been there. To prove right. there. And our house, <laughs> my father's manse, the, the vicarage, um, uh, was four miles from the finish line. And so, he, of course, no mobile phones back then. But it was right. pre-agreed. You know, when you get here, it was only literally 50 meters off the course, right. off the main road. said, come in, we'll give you some supper or something. And I, I, I still remember... I mean, and we were feeling exhausted, of course. I can imagine. Feet were sore, blisters. Come in and sit. I can still pitch in the, in the kitchen table. And my mother, I don't remember what she cooked, but, but I remember what my father did. What did he do? And my father got on all fours, took off our shoes and socks. Of course, in Canada, you wear your shoes in your house. So he had them on, and he washed my feet. And that blew your mind. That was so and it, it blew my mind. Of course, being a minister, I understood the the scriptural significance of it, and he did. So I, my dad had never served me before. Uh, uh, oh, and uh, if anything, I had a cantankerous relationship with him <laughs> as a, you know, a, a young pubescent boy. Um, but, and then, he's, then he said, we're so proud of you. You don't need to finish. You've done 31 miles. Like you're 12 years old, you've done 31 miles. And so you just, just stay home now. And I said, are you kidding? <laughs> because now I felt refreshed. Exactly. And so back to your point about was there anybody that That's ever encouraged you? Well, there are those moments. That's what I'm talking when about. When somebody does something that revives you and refreshes you. So you never, you know, you, it you have learn. to keep you on your path, I would like to it say. It keeps you on your path. And it keeps you moving forward in the path. So that, that, that then changed my life. Uh, it changed my perception of myself. I can do things... I can have adventures, I can meet challenges, and I can help others at the same time, have adventures with purpose. And that's what my life is, okay. that, that's my raison d'etre in life. 
So take me in through high school. You're at the end of high school. What were you studying really in high school? What were your interests in high school? Uh, always the humanities. And in fact, because my father had a year sabbatical where he taught at a theological school in San Antonio, Texas, I graduated from high school in San Antonio, okay. not in Canada. And uh, it was 1973, the year of Watergate. That's right. And my history class uh, was the best class because we were... We just watched TV, <laughs> and uh, the teacher—I forget it, forget his name—but he just—it uh, was riveting. And I also, also the the course in high school that's helped me most in life was a course I took there, typing. Okay, so okay, <laughs> a typing the books you read, of course. J U J. I also took, you know, bookkeeping. Right. I took some easy credits. Okay, right. But it was the history class. That you really... Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, and so that's where I graduated. Okay, so, so then when you... Did you go to college? Then went to college in Canada and uh, studied political science and history, then eventually mm-hmm. into theology mm-hmm. and started off my adult life as a, as a minister as well. I was well. going to ask you, you became a minister. Became a minister, and it didn't... And I, and I also was pastor, of a, I was interim minister at a church on an island called Salt Spring Island off the west coast of Canada. See, now, let me just say this yeah. all. Being a father yeah. and having a son who is older than you were at that time, I know how your father had to feel. You mm. chose his profession after he, and he, all of us hope we're doing our best when we're raising our children. We don't know. We never know. You know what? But what you did for him then, his first son, I mean, you gave him a pride that he could have left then and he would have been just fine as he could be. He, 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 was, uh, he was very happy. <laughs> Am I right? He was, he was very, Am I right? very happy indeed. Yeah, my son makes me feel like that now. My oldest. And my, How old is he? He's 36. Oh, okay. He'll be 37 on Christmas. Right. All four wow. of my sons make me feel so proud. Yeah. But it's beautiful if you get the first... You know the rest will follow. It yeah. makes you feel pretty good. But it's nice when you first does because they're the closest to you. Yeah. They spend more time with you. Yeah. <laughs> they help validate you. you know? yeah, absolutely. And that's what you did with your father. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's but, so but nice. I, I didn't last long. Okay, but you still did. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we don't care. You got on a base. You yeah. got on a base. You may not have made it home. That's okay. But unless you hit one out the park. Because the, uh, <laughs> I found out as a young Minister, I was too impatient with people and their problems. <laughs> like, so you didn't have that skill your father had. I did not. I didn't have the compassion he did. I think I'm a little bit more compassionate now. But also intellectually, I've, I've always lived on the doubt side of faith Is that rather right? than on the belief side of faith. And um, Is that still the same? It's, it's still the same. So, but, but because I was also, this was the hippie movement and make love, not war, and flower power. And but we were at the tail end of that. To, you and you I were, were the tail end of that. Yeah. So but we still got the influence to watch it, but we didn't get to enjoy any of that. <laughs> we didn't well, get... You're quite right on the enjoyment, but in terms of DNA of leave the world better than how you found that's, it. You that's know, there. This, no, I think that's really That legacy was left. And, right. and so in theology, that took me in the realm of liberation theology. Which uh, I've never heard of liberation it, theology. It's out, of, it's out of Latin America and... Uh, particularly among uh, Catholic, the Jesuits particularly, but the emphasis on the now rather than the hereafter, social justice, uh, poverty eradication. So that's what really then I, I, took, I, uh, I took what I believe was good about my faith, 
in terms of loving your neighbor and service of others. And I just went into the into the nonprofit sector. Okay. Uh, and then uh, as I've spent my entire life. And that eventually, so initially that took me to Mexico where I flew airplanes for a year, <laughs> flying <laughs> doctors and dentists up into the mountains. <laughs> okay, well, let me walk me through it then, Lo. All right. Sorry. When did you get your license? You're in college. Did you have a license for so I was, college? So I was taking a license. I was working two jobs to pay for it. This is why you were in college. Uh, this was after college. So I, yeah, I, okay. I won't bore you with all the... No, the, no, but get me to it. It, it, it was a little bit of a, che you know, a little okay. uh, uh, patchwork quilt here, but... But I, I devoted my time to get my license, work two jobs. And I can't, because I, I took a break from college and went back again. So it may have been an in-between period. But then I was, uh, I was working in a sawmill and, and then a, the airport car park overnight. But, but I ran out of money. Okay. So this opportunity came to fly as second pilot okay. in Mexico where I could have my student license. I could build up hours, so I went. All right. And uh, never flown. Well, I had already flown. I had soloed already. Okay. I had already well, soloed. Wait, wait, wait. In Cessna's. So in Cessna, one fifty two. One fifty two. Okay. Yeah. You so fly? You, no, but I did a couple of a little bit. Okay. I had a friend taking me up, but I never did. But I want to. I still want to. Yeah. I don't think it's too late. I can still say. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a one fifty two, and then and then uh, Mexico is a Cessna one eighty two. Okay. And uh, also Cherokee Piper. Right. And we would fly doctors and dentists up in the mountains. And, you know, one of my childhood dreams was to fly airplanes. Well, the year in Mexico, basically bush flying and getting sick so much, it, you know, I, I've been there, done that. I, did, I didn't need to do it anymore Dude, after that. Tired of that. I, I, was, I was okay. No. Uh, Dysentery? Yeah. Or? Oh, well, I got hepatitis. Okay. I got typhoid. Uh, but also just... Because we were landing on grass strips, oh, yeah. and, and one grass strip in the mountains was kind of L-shaped on a hill. So, and uh, after I left, my friend with the Cherokee Piper flipped his airplane on that very strip. He survived it. But I just, you know, it was it was an adventure flying for a year in the in the mountains of Mexico, and that was enough. That's called never-ending adventure. What made you decide to start writing? Again, a childhood dream, and it was a rather romantic notion to, to be like Somerset Mom. And but who uh, had you read that you made you? Or were you a reader? Were you really I, I reading? was a reader. Yeah, were you? although difficult reading. I thought it so. was part of part of the disorder. Right. Uh, it took you a long time to but, read. But I, I, and I never learned how to speed read. Okay. I, I was taught technique in that. Mm. Um, but I just, but I like. I guess because of my disorder. Um, words fascinated me, and that's why I wanted to live in England because we lived there 13 years. You know, words, even elementary students in England have a exquisite use of the English language. They? they use words precisely. They do. Whereas in North America, particularly Canada, I can't speak for her, can we bend words into the meaning we want them to have? <laughs> I think Americans could be accused of doing that quite a bit too. Right. So I'm attracted to, to word craft, right. and uh, I wouldn't. I'm not a. I would say I'm not a good writer, but I'm a lucky writer because okay. I've been published. Now it will be my tenth time. Oh, None good. of them bestsellers. That's okay. But I always sold enough books for my publisher to give me another contract. Well, that's beautiful. Hmm. 
So tell me, so when you got in the nonprofit, what was the first one that you got into that you actually felt? I mean, you, you told me the one where you did for Haiti. I understand that was yeah. your first time. Well, years well old. then there was the Mexico and, one, which was an independent one. Uh, but the 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 NGO I've been involved with since the late seventies in a variety of ways is Hope International Development Agency, and uh, I went to Thailand with them, worked in the refugee camps. I was staff in Canada. I helped start it in the UK. Um, and then when I moved to Japan, my colleagues in Canada asked me to come back and work for them full-time again there. I said, no, I promised my wife I'd move back to Japan with her. That's another story. Um, but I'll see if I can raise a bit of money here. This was in uh, 1999. We moved here in 1997. And uh, so... Have you never lived here before? I had never lived here before. My, my wife was born and raised here. And you met her? Uh, she was the daughter of Canadian missionaries. Okay. From the same church my father was connected with. So, so they were best friends. From what time? How old were you when they became best friends? Uh, neither of us were born yet. So, wait, so you knew her growing up? I knew her growing up. She's five years younger. Okay. So whenever they came home from Japan on, as they called it, furlough, which right. is a military term right. as it well, is. Is. Uh, which was every four or five years, they would come and stay with us in the church manse, and my brother and her would play together, and we always thought that they would grow up and get married. And then she moved back, and she was 18, and she looked different. <laughs> and you think it's worse. <laughs> I beat my brother up. And <laughs> they're still best friends to this day. They're like brother and sister. Your brother didn't just get married? No, that was my son that just got you, married. Your son that just got married, yeah. okay. Yeah. And that's your oldest son? That's my younger son. Your oldest one's already married? Yeah, oldest one's married, Ryan. He works for RGF Executive, uh, okay. I, and uh, proud of him, and I have a grandson, and... He married a beautiful Filipina girl called okay. uh, Mari Chris, and uh, we were with them for the weekend. And then my younger son, Mackenzie, is a film director, and uh, he married, uh, he actually, the girl he married was working here at TAC at the time. She was in the French restaurant upstairs or something. And, What's her name? Uh, uh, Hitomi Yoshimura. Hitomi. Uh, I'm was, sure I know This her. was now 10 years ago, so it may have been, maybe while you were president. Yeah. Um, in fact, no, when, in fact, she. Yeah, I'll ask her later. Yeah, I said I, I think Wait, she actually. When did she start? She she'd been here, right, for a while. She I don't know how long because I didn't know her. That's when when he met her is when here. she was working here, and, at the French restaurant. You mean the, on this on this floor? You're not the French restaurant. I, I guess so. I, I, yeah, I, on I, chops. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And chops the steak restaurant. Right. Yeah. French, French. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So both boys are very. Neither followed in my footsteps. They're both and they're both very different, but. We're a close family. I bet they are. And we're, I'm are. proud of them both. Yeah. Did your wife work at all? Did she decide? She's, a, she's in the wedding business Okay. in, in Nagoya. She, uh, growing up here, she worked as a model and in media, and, and she still does that. So when we moved back here, she reconnected with her agent. If you've heard the uh, Maz, Mazda c commercial, the voice that goes zoom, zoom, that's my wife's voice. <laughs> 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 her claim to fame. Her claim zoom, to fame. Zoom. She's she's the zoom zoom girl. <laughs> like but then she loves it, and she's in the involved in the wedding business in nice. in that going. Well, I know. Did you did you want to have boys? Or did you want to have girls? Or did it really matter? It didn't really matter. They, okay. It, 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 I don't think we ever discussed that. But did you want two, three, four kids? Did you decide about that? We had. Um, uh, we have three boys. Oh, did you hit too? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, that's fine, and and uh, and what I'm about to say is not meant to arouse sympathy nor 
bore you with the details, but our first son died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Too. And uh, and that that was a faith altering uh, incident in our in my life particularly, and that's probably when uh, that's when the word that's when the concept of mystery became part of my faith lexicon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's just because I had people saying. Because he only lived three days. We thought he was a healthy baby when he was born and turned out he had a heart deformity. Um, but, uh, and we, we had Christians praying for him and saying, Everything this is the why he died. The devil stole him from you. And, and I said, but, you know, if there's a loving God, then, and a God who's ultimately in control of everything, then how could the devil steal? Uh, how could you blame anybody else but God? And so... It's God alone I hold responsible. And that's not said in any bitter way. But that just means it's a mystery. Like, there's no answer to that question. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm probably now more on the doubts, even more on the doubt side. Of there being a God? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's now become a very private matter to me. Okay, I'm not, afraid, we'll, we'll I'm not afraid to talk about it. I'm not ashamed of it. But when I used to be in the, in the business of religion there's always an element of wanting to persuade people to believe. Uh, and I'm not, now that I'm on the doubt side, I'm not trying to persuade people of anything. I just know for me, I have these questions that are unanswerable. Mm-hmm. So therefore, mystery. And I'm happy to live with the mystery. Mm-hmm. I hope what my father taught me is true. My wife, on the other hand, is is never... There's never any gray area for her. She's a believer. Oh, I see. Yeah, she's confident. She'll but see our a, son in heaven. And that's very interesting. For her, you say it's not gray area. But for the culture, there's a big gray area. Yeah. They live in a gray area, basically. Yeah. And I think that helps them to get along. Yes. Because we, we want it to be one way or the other. And they say, no, no, no. Not necessarily. Mm. Particularly when you're involved. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Too many variables here. There's amb- ambiguity. That's right, right, right. That's right. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So where do we find you today now? What are you the most proud of? I know what you're going to say. But wait, I, I shouldn't ask you. As a father, I know that already. But let me say, what are some of the other things outside of your sons and the wife that you have, I'm sure, that you really find pleasure in, that you think, wow, I'm, I really did that. You might have let it go, but I mean, you accomplished it. And you could have thought. Well, with, without a doubt. So there's. Uh, let me say three things uh, outside of family because okay. of right because you you already covered that that's, for that's sure. uh, um, certainly my work with Hope International Development Agency is the most gratifying part of my life because we're we're no nonsense we're committed to outcomes and our mission is helping the neglected poor become self reliant and so the Japan organization which I founded with a group of others. Um, and 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 it has now grown to be in the top two percent of NGOs in Japan. We focused on Cambodia, Ethiopia, and the Philippines, and there's reasons why we're in each of those countries. I now know personally hundreds of people, and have met thousands of people who are out of poverty today because of people's generosity here, because where we focus in on this clean water and take Cambodia for example you know we we help create shallow wells 
we cluster five or six families who are all go through a selection process. Um, uh, people live in extreme poverty. We create these well user groups. And within nine months to a year, uh, their lives have been changed. In fact, one set of numbers, which I did, which we did an audit years ago, typically the families in Cambodia we work with, if you monetized everything that they produce under $150 a year, they're extremely poor. It means they're sick. They're walking long distances in dry season. They get dirty water. In rainy season, they got dirty water there. Kids can't afford to go to school because although schools is free, you have to buy uh, textbooks and the uniforms, etc. Um, and uh, but within nine to twelve months, they're up between seven hundred fifty and a thousand dollars a year if you extrapolate it in actual cash income, because access to clean water brings them health, so they're not sick. Um, they can now they now have water to, and energy to grow more plants and grow their own food, and they're producing more than what they need. So they're selling in the market, they're getting money, the kids don't have to walk anymore, they can go to school, uh, they build new houses, we then get them access to micro credit. And you know, Lance, one of the first things you notice is aesthetically, they, they now have an appreciation for the beautiful side of life. Well, and two things really, I'd, I'd naively ask them, the silly question that North Americans always ask, what's your dream? You know, I ask it still all the time. Okay. What's your, they're, the poor, the eyes just glaze over like, is not a concept that's in their universe. It's, it's how many meals that week they're gonna have. Will I make it the next day? But within a year, they got plans. No, they got plans. They got plans. So without a doubt, that's gratifying uh, to my life. Uh, then, this next, and so I'm still on the board of Hope, um, and uh, uh, Jeff Bear, who's a member here at TAC, has replaced me as an executive director. So when I was turned 64, I, I made three announcement at, announcements at my birthday party, my 64th birthday party. Uh, one was, uh, it's time for somebody else to take over the running of Hope. My Japanese language is awful, and it needed somebody to, to advance us. Uh, secondly, I was going to return to speaking and writing and start a consultancy called Navigate 22, which is all about uh, navigating the complexities of, the, of this century with the next century in mind. You know, what legacy we're leaving our kids, social legacy. And thirdly, I wanted to learn how to sail, buy a sailboat, and sail across the Pacific Ocean through the garbage patch before I'm 70 years old. Have you done that yet? So I haven't done that yet. Okay. So, I, so we hired somebody... With uh, uh, in hope, Shepherd, yeah, yeah, and then I started Navigate Twenty Two in February Twenty Twenty, which was the wrong time to start a business, <laughs> um, which then advanced the sped up the time to me to get the boat. So I bought my boat, uh, moved on her, and I I'm sixty eight now, so I have right. two years to go. But recently, two years ago for what? Well, so I set the goal of before I'm seventy to make it through the Pacific. Yeah. okay. But I've recently have lifted the rigidity of that goal off. It remains more an aspiration. So in March 21, I set out from Tokyo um, on a stress test sail to Okinawa on my own to see if the boat and I were ready to go. Yeah. And I got a third of the way and it, it, it worked. 
because I realized we weren't ready to go. Okay, okay, but it's it. So, <laughs> so, the way that so, so I went to me again, <laughs> okay. and History Channel had already approached me about documenting my trip across the Pacific to the garbage patch. So I had to phone them up and phone up my sponsors because I'm from the nonprofit sector. I didn't bring a, a mountain of cash with right, me to right, this stream. Right. Um, so I had to go out and get sponsors. And without exception, they were all relieved. <laughs> and, uh, and History Channel came back a few months later and said, well, you know, while you're, because I said, I'm just going to keep sailing around Japan to get practice. And, and my boat has legal issues, mm -hmm. as every boat in Japan does right? with the JCI. And that's, uh, right. that's a rather kind of niche topic that would be uninteresting to most people. Right. Um, so I've now, they said, Can, we'd like to follow you around Japan and do a television series called Dare to Dream. Who, the History Channel? Yeah. That? Frank? So, so are, you we, are, you, are you talking with Frank Foley? Uh, uh, John Flanagan. John, History, John Flanagan. History Channel. History Channel. History Channel. A&E. Yeah. Yeah, John Flanagan. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes. Yeah, he's a member here. So, so we also a podcast. We filmed. Uh, yes, I've seen him on your podcast. So we filmed the pilot last year in Ikijima. Uh, we were to have done it on Amami, where I am now, because uh, when I left Tokyo in 2021, the mayor and his head of tourism in this remote port on Amami, a place called Uken, had started following me on my YouTube channel, Pacific Solo. And like I only had a couple hundred subscribers back then. And uh, th they said, come here, come here. You can more for free. And so I kind of, although I said Okinawa in my, really my heart, Amami was a destination. So you be, yeah. And uh, then I had to abort. So when history started to follow me, we were going to film the first, the pilot in Amami. Uh, I was almost there, southern tip of Kagoshima, when the Karoishi, the pumice field that came from the underwater volcano off Odawara uh, had floated down and flooded the harbors in Okinawa and Amami. And so I was warned, don't come because, mm. because marine engines, it's a sailboat, but you need an engine to get in out of port and the seawater intake it would suck all that gravelly stuff in and ruin your engine. So then I sailed up to Nagasaki Goto. We were going to film there and then Omicron went on the rise. I arrived four days before the film crew, and, uh, and the film crew was about to fly down, and the, the mayor there said, don't come, you're not allowed. Right. So then I went to Ikijima, and nearly sunk getting there, I had to be rescued by the Coast Guard. Your boat actually capsized? No, no, it started to fill with water. Um, I encountered under-the-surface un, under garbage that got entangled. I was motor sailing just after sunrise. This is January. Uh, I'd left port at 5 a.m. in the morning to beat a storm to Ikijima. Anyways, so I was to be rescued by the Coast Guard, and eventually, once the boat was repaired, we filmed the pilot in Ikijima. And they aired the pilot last year, and now we're doing a full season one called Dare to Dream. And, the, and so that leads me to say that when I, because I'm not from the nonprofit sector, I had to, I had, I had to make this hobby a business. And uh, Harry Hill is one of my best friends, of, formerly of Shop Japan, now UFC Jim, and one of my top sponsors. He's one of the first ones who said, Lowell, to be sustainable, you need to make a business out of this. So my YouTube channel, the last book I had written was called Never Too Late. hope I didn't. Yes, uh, so you did right then. Yeah. Okay. It was called Never Too Late. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to reread my own book as my manual. And then 
a lot of my followers began to call themselves never too laters. And so I was being asked for advice on this and that and everything from how do you navigate fear to how do you, like off, before I hit a thousand subscribers, uh, I had raised a hundred thousand dollars cash in sponsorship. So I was being asked by other sailing channels, how do you do that? And, and so, it's so the only I, thing I know how to do is raise funds because I've been doing it since I was 12. Okay, so I was gonna say, <laughs> how you raised it? Would you, you told them, okay, there's a fee to doing this? Give me this information. Well, there was, it's like I've organized almost 100 charity galas with Hope in nine different cities on three continents. We just had two uh, last weekend, one in Singapore, one in Osaka, both at the Conrad on the same night. Okay. And so, uh, but when I went, got into the sailing world, okay, you know, what's, what's the real estate that's available for signage? And uh, so I went to yacht races and I just, just like you do for the ACCGA right. gala, you get your tiers and right. you get and your table placement and stuff right. like that. Um, so, as a result, I started um, uh, I started uh, a business called the Never Too Late Academy, and that's bringing fulfillment. I had to go out and get investors, so I got a group of angels together, uh, seven altogether, including my uh, my two sons, and Harry's one of them, and. Mike Elfond, who you know, is one of them, yes, and yes. Doug Hymas, who you yes, think is, yes, is, yes. is is one of the, and Paul Dupuis, they're all uh, co-founders. Wow, yeah, they're all, all involved with me, um, and um, we've just closed our we just closing our angel round actually this this month, and so now and that and with that funding we were able to hire a guy from Red Bull who's running helping us grow and because we've in the words of Peter Thiel or his concept. We've gone, we went, we, we did the zero to one. You know, we laid the foundation. We have seven courses. Um, we've got on the academy site, we have, we have uh, almost 80 videos, teaching videos. We're now adding other instructors. It's kind of like chicken soup for the soul, where right, it's going to be a generic, right. generic brand. But now we have to get into customer acquisition, you know, accelerate that. So did you do these 80? Um, training so, videos? so I've been the sole content creator right. thus yeah. far, right. but now we're bringing in others. Right, but to, up to the, the eighty that are out there, you did those. Yeah, yeah. So I've I did seven courses, and our our mission is to help people everywhere mm -hmm. acquire the courage and the tools to realize high stake dreams. And so the courage is the inspirational. So there's a lot of just inspirational stuff. Uh, what what you you're very good at, and then there's all the tools where uh, so like uh, Doug Hymas goes through one of the courses. Okay, if you're using your own money, this is how you mitigate risk, right. or how do you protect your own money? Right. And Harry does something on marketing and brand alignment, and and he compliments what I about how do you go out and get sponsors, and uh, and one of the one of our posters child students, a young couple. Uh, I, they were involved in a group coaching through the academy last year and uh, a, a dream similar to mine. And I took them through my uh, sponsorship coaching series with four others. And their very first appointment, which they had me join by telephone, they walked away with a quarter million dollar cash sponsorship deal, which is more than twice of what I got. And, and now that money's in their bank account and, and they're funding their dream. So it's the only thing, and, and I don't say this with any overconfidence, the only thing I, I guess I have a comfort zone in 
is, is how do you create a community around a cause? Um, and in fact, a speaking agency has just signed me in India, wanted me to come to India and speak because they, they approached me and said, this is what we think you, you are good at. And, and some of my clients in Navigate 22 approached me the same, like one guy, uh, one gentleman, he had a group of 15 investors on a big project in another country. And he said, well, what I've noticed about you is with Hope and now with Pacific Solo, you seem to be able to build a community around your cause. Would you help me to do that with my investors? Could a disparate group of investors? But, but that just stems from a commitment to authenticity and integrity. That's what it and, takes. And don't burn bridges. Make, make friends. And, and in fundraising, I've learned when I've trained other fundraisers, you know, ask the question. Be clear with it. Um, but respect the answer. That's right. We're not trying to sell somebody That's something. Right. And, they want to do it. And listen carefully mm -hmm. because their answer may leave room open for they you to again. if you to where they want to help, but ultimately respect. But even if the answer is no, keep them in the community. That's right. You have to. Yeah. That, that makes me think of um, how I've gotten into a lot of the positions I've gotten into, particularly starting off with Sacred Heart. Sister right. Sheehy was not going to let me have my gymnastics program there. Right, okay. Took me three years, because I'd always come back, and she'd say, I thought I told you no, young man. I said, but that was last <laughs> year, and things could have changed. Right. So finally she said, you are the most tenacious young man I've right. ever met. You can run your program here. Right. And we had it ever since. Yeah. Always there. So you're right about that, role. Let me ask you this. The, line, the way I like to end the program, because you, you've done so much, and I'm sure I'm going to have to have you on a couple of times so we can go through a lot more. If you could go back in time, now you might have seen the podcast and know this is coming, maybe you don't, but if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, and you could speak to the younger Lowell, how old would he be and what advice would you give him? The phrase that comes immediately to mind, and it's a, a mantra, is don't give up. How old would he be when you tell him that? Um, well, see, you're... <laughs> So, so that brings me right back to my childhood. And uh, the eyes kind of moisten because uh, those, were, those were dark moments of feeling like the misfit dreamer. And hence the, the title of my, the part one of this next book. Um, and, uh, and back then, I, I was probably more, I was a believer in never in a million years. And now I'm a believer in it's never too late. And, and perseverance, and uh, 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 what's his name? I forget his name now, a, a, a British writer who, who, for, who uses the word superpower to describe the ability to experience discomfort as a superpower. And I think that's what I, I learned early on. And uh, perseverance, I think, is a muscle that grows stronger with age. Um, but I think it's, I'm glad I never gave up. And that's the voice I did hear mm. back in my primary. So it probably would be, now, if there were these particular moments where I made foolish mistakes and bad decisions, at that moment I said, don't do that, mm. <laughs> do this. Mm. 
But um, no, I think it's, it's uh, I was just kept on whispering to that young boy. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And never forget, it's all unknown. So continue to reach for the stars. Because you're too blessed to be stressed. <laughs>